0: Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, our season premiere. This is a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal. My name is Dan Delmar, along with uh, FL head Mike Newton. Hey, Mike, welcome back. Hey, Dan, how you doing? It's starting time to kick off a new season. Oh, so much to do this season. We we're very excited. Um, we are going to talk to a lot more international entrepreneurs this season. We have some big plans, especially for the new year. Um, we're talking about supply chain and urban farming on the program today with the co-founder of Lufa Farms Lauren Rathmill. very excited about that um lots to talk about in business um, over the last few months how was your summer Mike? Uh,
1: summer was uh, i guess a little uh, creative to get to get around doing things uh, you know i like uh, i like the horse races and i go to saratoga so i managed to get down and see a few ponies run uh, the reality at the end of the day is we are still no further ahead today than we were uh, back in June and July when everybody kicked out from a COVID perspective and you know the biggest the thing that's taking its its biggest toll on us continues to be uh, you know the, the the change in the workforce and, and resignation and you know it, it's a challenge I you know Dan I think I think you have an opinion on the decimation that's been uh, going on to many people and many businesses that you know
0: yeah, let's start the labor shortage. I think that's one, the one issue, I think, uh, besides obviously COVID and related uh, problems, uh, that's the one issue that's been on the minds of a lot of entrepreneurs that, that I speak with and some of my clients who are having trouble attracting talent. Um, in communications, it's it's affecting me as well. Um, I think I could safely say my business would grow a lot faster um, if I had access to a bigger talent pool. What's going on out there um, in your estimation? Is this sort of like a generational shift? Is, is COVID sort of Keeping a, a new generation of of workers out of commission for a little bit.
1: Well, I, I, I mean, we could go on and have our own show basically on this one topic. Uh, I mean, the one thing that we're really starting to see is is COVID is is forced people uh, to rethink their lives, and and you, you know you take a generation that. Uh, was already in flux in trying to understand themselves and, and trying to figure where they wanted to go professionally, and you throw them into a crisis like this, and they're 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 rethinking the rat race, uh, you know, from a, f- a certain situation. I mean, the U.S. is is now officially called this the Great Resignation and you know, your your turnover rate is astronomical. It's something we've really never seen before. Uh, you've got people leaving jobs without having another job because they just don't like where they are knowing that there's another job out there for them somewhere. Uh, I think in a large part, this is a continuity of, of, a, of, a, of an issue and a, I want an issue, a, a philosophy that started a few years ago uh, with the millennial generation. And you know, I, I, I'm i 53 and I have a brother who's uh, you know 39 and the reality is is you know he moved out of the professional world uh, to do exactly what what our guest today is talking about and starting you know his own greenhouse and growing vegetables and selling and you know he happened to have the greatest timing in the world where he pushed this out under COVID but what we're starting to see is a lot of people rethink how they want to spend their time and, and their life and right now by far the largest increase in turnover is that 30 to 45 age group that falls into that millennial. And, and, and I think it falls right into the philosophical issues that they had previously before COVID. So I, I think all this done is exacerbate a situation that is going to make most of our world's very complicated coming forward. I mean, anybody who's in business who is looking at transition, and certainly from a professional firm like ours, you know, the future lies on that next generation. And and if they don't want to stay in the profession, or if they only want to work uh, from home, or if we're going to change the way we do things, uh, those of us that you know, still consider ourselves to be in power, uh, have to start figuring out how to make that work. And, and there's massive, massive flexibility that's gonna have to come. You know, interestingly enough, uh, resignation rates in the 60 to 70 year old age group uh, is actually down. Uh, during the pandemic and there's only been a small modification in resignation rates in that you know 20 to 25 age so we're really looking at uh, one group that is really driving and and I'm not surprised I mean they have been a group that from the beginning has traditionally had a very different set of values than the rest of us and and I think COVID is really making them uh, evaluate those
0: so I am, a, I am a millennial, I suppose, an elder millennial, but one nonetheless. And I've been really making an effort since we founded TNKR uh, five-ish years ago to, to really try to work differently. So we do have opening hours like a regular business. But myself, I mean, you know, getting to a nine to five kind of place was never really a possibility. So I dropped that pretense a very long time ago. I like working seven to seven. I take my days a little slowly. Yes, I do take a lunch. I walk Poppy the dog at lunch as well. Um, I'm a big fan of longer days and spreading things out a little bit and being a little less intense, especially, I mean, I'm in the communications industry, so we can all be very intense and frenzied, especially when we put social media into the mix. So Mike, people are even talking about a four-day work
1: week. I don't think we're anywhere close to there yet, but maybe we will be soon. It's an interesting topic, because if you go back uh, probably about three years ago, there was a public debate going on between uh, Richard Branson and Elon Musk uh, which really entailed, uh, you know, Elon Musk said, uh, you know, nobody ever created uh, the wealth and, and the major changes in the work and the 35 hour work week. And Branson was really pushing for this three to four day work week, maybe 12 hours a day, but a different approach. Uh, it, it's an interesting uh, interesting perspective, because I think what we're going to start to see and, and I don't know how we fix the communication. I don't know how we fix the cooperation. But I think we are going to start to see uh, multiple people uh, doing work on a Uh, full-time equivalency basis so you may have three people doing two people's two people's jobs uh, and which requires you know obviously a lot of communication a lot of coordinations a lot of logistics management because you know clients uh, people uh, business uh, uh, consumers uh, we're used to seven days a week right I mean this is this is something so People don't want to work those seven days a week so maybe somebody's going to work four and somebody else is going to work three and you know the way we've done shift work at the retail level i think we may start to see some of that finding its way into office work going forward
0: speaking of um the way we work let's talk about the results and a word that does cause some controversy in business circles certainly when we get Mm -hmm. to academic circles or when we talk about business philosophy and that word is productivity this piece in the Harvard Business Review uh, by Jamie Teven encouraging uh, everyone to redefine productivity for the hybrid era. There are several objective measure, metrics uh, by which we um, discuss productivity, right? We know that we are less productive as Canadians. How do we reconcile that, uh, the fact that we are a less productive people?
1: So I will tell you right now that if you can figure it out and bottle it, uh, you won't have to worry about being on the radio any longer. Uh, this is something that is a major, major problem across the board. Is the shift in the? Uh, I mean, we had. I think we had this conversation last year, which is redefining profitability, right? And what is profitable profitable to a business? Is that going to be absolute dollars, or is that going to be quality of life? Is that going to be uh, sustainability? Is that going to be uh, you know emotional intelligence? You got to take that thought process and roll it forward into productivity because productivity is just one of the subsections of, of, of profitability. And, and I think you're going to continue to see people trying to redefine. I think you're going to have industry segments that are going to have different definitions. You are going to have uh, philosophical approaches to, to all of this. I mean, if you look, you know, some of the things that they talk about is you know, measuring well-being, collaboration, and innovation. Well, last time I checked, the accountants had a really hard time quantifying any of those. You know, and and really from a productivity perspective, you know, it's been about number crunching. It's been about saying, well, you know, efficiency was, you know, you were pr- producing at, you know, 97%, well, we need you to be at 98%. Well, how do you work in emotional intelligence? How do you work in uh, quality of life? How do you, uh, there, there's, I think there's a revolution coming in the way we define things. And I think we're going to end up with this polarity between a lot of businesses, which are going to be traditionally, uh, traditionally minded in profitability and in productivity to those that are going to be. Be creating very different uh, work environment, and, and, and it's funny, I mean, you could say this started 25 years ago in Silicon Valley, when they started to put in ping pong tables and wear shorts to work and, you know, and, and everything that it's just, a, it's a continuation of that. And COVID has done nothing. Uh, there's nothing new from COVID. All it's done is really sped up the process in everybody's minds.
0: Sometimes I talk to millennial owners and, uh, you know, uh, of entrepreneurs and they're they're managing the workforces and talking about how do we set up our office and our bouncy balls and all of that. And I'm like, you know, people still like money. I think I think people just like more money sometimes. You can you can try that. Uh,
1: it's it's you know, Dan, it's uh, we're both chuckling, but I got to tell you that this is a problem. And the problem is, is people have become used to lifestyles. They've become used to ways of living. They've become used to receiving a certain amount of dollars. Uh, and it's hard to say I'm going to take less to do less. Uh, even though I want the quality of life. And I think there's a big awakening in ownership of pers- personal situations coming up. And I think that's going to be probably the biggest bridge to gap uh, at this point is uh, is going to be that ownership of saying, yes, this is what I want. However, this is what I'm prepared to accept in return. And, you know, there's there's, an, there's been a whole big discussion on on, you know, people who are no longer going to want to work on Wall Street, but want to make the same money. Uh, while they're working from home. I mean, there's gonna have to be a shift. None of us are gonna solve that in the next hour. Uh, but the reality is, is is, this is coming and you've got one other really major area. And, and I think all of these things tied together, which is this multi-generational management within an organization of philosophical differences that at today, post, well, I'd love to say post COVID, but uh, where we are today uh, has been completely and totally polarized in terms of quality of life, versus if you don't have a business, you don't get to have a quality of life. And and, and this is going to be a battle that I think we're going to see play out in many organizations, probably none more than the professional segment where you've got multi-generations involved. Uh, And what is that going to look like as we go forward in order to keep everybody happy?
0: Real quick, uh, this is one of these sort of entrepreneur bait stories from Fast Company that gets entrepreneurs uh, really thinking. Five questions emotionally intelligent leaders ask themselves every day. I'll read them quickly, and, and you tell me your thoughts, Mike. Did I empower my team enough? Am I listening and understanding well enough? Did I recognize people when they went above and beyond? Am I supporting my people and achieving their goals? And am I making my vision for the organization clear and consistent?
1: I would say with without, with the exception of number five, If you can try and find somebody that can quantify the first four, uh, you're way ahead of the game. I mean, these then become philosophical discussions. I mean, the concept of emotional intelligence in and of itself is a bit challenging for a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of older generation. And, and I don't mean older generation as being 75 and up. I'm talking the post millennial uh, group in terms of understanding emotional intelligence. It's one thing to understand it. It is completely and totally another thing to find a way to implement it within your organizations. And I think this again is is, is kind of the cultural shift that 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 we're facing. Uh, and you know, I. Won't don't lie uh, we're a professional services firm and you know I asked my I asked myself these questions uh, if I could actually find a way to answer them on a regular basis I might have a bigger smile on my face but as it stands right now I'm still trying to figure out the math
0: all right let's get started season number 13 of today's entrepreneur with a really epic guest to start the co-founder of Lufa Farms, and uh, this is a really, uh, Lauren Rathmill is gonna be speaking for Lufa This is really, it's it's more than a business, it's become almost a subculture in Montreal. They're getting international attention, largest greenhouse, indoor rooftop greenhouse in the world. Just a fascinating business, and one that um, represents uh, the Montreal Brain Trust, and the fact that we have a lot to contribute um, on the world stage. And we're really thrilled to speak to a, a company that, that uh, I'm a fan of. I, I have no connection with them, other than that I've been a patron, They've made the news internationally. They've really put Quebec on the map in terms of urban agriculture. They recently opened, uh, I believe, was one of the world's largest indoor greenhouses, if not the largest. Really impressive company. Uh, With us today is Lauren Rathmill of Lufa Farms. Lauren, welcome to today's entrepreneur.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: First, what is Lufa Farms? Let's just do a quick definition, please.
2: Um, So we're a company that grows food on rooftops in the city um, and also partners with local farms and food makers uh, and everything's provided through an an online farmers market uh, directly to customers.
1: Right, so uh, I, I'll start off with the, my initial thought when I was told, you know, we're bringing loofah farms on, and I thought I was trying to figure out how I was going to get one of these for the shower, you know, a loofah to, to clean up with. So uh, I had to uh, to educate myself, I guess, a little bit more on what you're doing. But in, in all seriousness, I, you know, the the solution that you're providing here is is to me is, is a phenomenal one. We look around the world, and the opportunities for us to to do urban farming, uh, you know, to to feed the world as opposed to, you know, processed food and everything else that exists is is an is not only an honorable one but it's a potentially a very financially lucrative one um, what were some of the biggest obstacles I guess that when you started to build rooftop uh, farms what, what were some of the what were some of the issues
2: um I think first and foremost was finding that first site um that's I'm actually sitting on our greenhouse now working from here but um this site was we were looking for an existing building so we we did it in a very uh, I guess Database sense. We went and took Google Maps. We surveyed basically the whole island of Montreal, and quadrant by quadrant looked for a site that a rooftop that would have enough space to house a greenhouse. uh You know, at least 30,000 square feet. We were looking for at the time, um, and then we kind of were looking at structurally w- would the building actually be able to support it, um, and then the third tier would be actually finding a building owner that would be willing to take the the plunge with us, and then like test the whole concept out essentially. So convincing someone to get on board um and and let their building be be the first world's first rooftop greenhouse. Um so that took time. It took uh and then engineering the greenhouse beyond that point again was like a whole nother this was the world's first of its type. So figuring out how to actually adapt a greenhouse to be built on a rooftop. Um, those are some of the key like technical challenges early on and since we've done that proof of concept it's been easier and easier, still very hard to find sites and to build greenhouses but we've learned a ton um, and we've kind of slowly, slowly perfecting that, that model um, and being able to build on more rooftops.
1: So I got to assume that, you know, there's a lot of people that have little gardens growing on their rooftops. I mean, this is uh, we're not talking. I mean, I, I can see the picture behind you. Unfortunately, our, our, our the audience can't, but they can go to the websites. It's phenomenal. And, and you know, you're talking about 30,000 square feet of uh, urban farming. Um, you know, I put a, I, I grow a few vegetables on, up on my roof is one thing. I mean, there's got to be zoning. There's got to be permits. There's got to be acceptance from the city. I mean, not everybody's going to go uh, jump on their rooftop and start farming.
2: No, exactly, I think um, it, we kind of had to define it for the city let's say and, and, and the building owners and everyone in in our ecosystem um, because it wasn't being done, not at this scale. So this is three fourths of an acre to kind of give you another idea of, of that snapshot. Since then we've built three other greenhouses, each bigger than the last. Um, our most recent we opened um, just over a year ago in Ville Saint Laurent and that was um, uh, yeah, like the largest today, actually the world's largest uh, rooftop greenhouse. Um, and uh, sorry, I just wanted to give you the, the square footage. I always forget, um, but it's essentially um, 100 yeah 163,000 square feet. So much larger than our 30,000 square feet uh, here today, and. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, I kind of jumped all over the place, but you get the idea.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about that Saint facility for a little bit, because I, I mentioned that off the top. Um, that's sort of what got uh, you guys on the map for me. And you made the, the news internationally. It's really incredible. Did you go into this project wanting to set a record or did this become apparent later on?
2: Uh, no, I think so. Every greenhouse has been bigger than the last. We're, we're looking for those economies of scale. Um, we want to produce each site is so hard to find and build still today that we want them to be bigger so that we can produce more food in one fell swoop essentially when we start opening a a new greenhouse so it's it's really key that we we build big enough uh and then fewer rooftop greenhouses you know each larger than the last the what was really great about the Ville Saint Laurent site um was just the timing I mean it was not something we planned at all but um we with with everything that happened last year with the the onset of the pandemic, uh, in March, we essentially doubled our volumes overnight. It was, you know, everybody's moving to online, uh, home delivery, et cetera. And we were able to provide a lot of that and Bill St. Laurent came online, uh, right like a month or two later. So, and it was all the tomatoes you could imagine. (laughs) Like we had 10 different varieties, um, you know, barrels and bushels and and pounds and tons of tomatoes. So yeah, fortunately good timing, lots, lots of tomatoes for, for
1: very cool. Let's let's take a step back again to site selection. I mean, you, you made it sound like, hey, we'll uh, you know we'll survey the land, we'll find a rooftop, and boom. So long as somebody's on. I mean, there's a lot more that goes into farming. I grew up in the country. You know, you're talking about site selection. You're talking about soil uh, acidity. You're talking about uh, crop rotation. I mean, they are all things that farmers have to deal with. And and you know, we've seen the I don't wanna say the death of the small farmer, but the reality is that, that a lot of the, the field farming has become very corporate. Uh, and a lot of small people are not capable of maintaining the farms that they used to have, at least from a financial perspective. Um, you're talking about doing something that you know, ultimately at the end of the day is not necessarily uh, capital intensive in machinery and equipment, but rather in infrastructure. And, and I guess, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the big differences between somebody who's going to do this type of farming and somebody who's going to put a greenhouse on land in the suburbs, uh, are there any major differences? And are you looking for something different when you're looking for a rooftop?
2: Um, uh, yeah, and, uh, interesting way to look at it. I think um, it's it's more expensive to build a, a rooftop greenhouse versus one on the on land. Um, part of the reason we do that, well, there's actually two main reasons we're doing that, which is not to use new land. So to repurpose these lost spaces um, that are either existing or under, you know, planned uh, rooftops, uh, commercial rooftops. So we're able to repurpose those, turn them into food production, um, be closer to our customers as well, obviously by doing that, by being in the city. And then the sustainability side of it, we can actually save about half the energy by being on a rooftop than on the ground um, on a year-round basis. That's what we've we've looked at. So it's really, and it's a win for the building below, obviously, we're uh, year round, we're kind of replacing the, the negative effects of a, of a urban rooftop, which is, you know, as a heat island in summer, we're a cooling kind of transpiring plant surface. Um, and in winter, we're insulating where this nice warm bubble on top to help prevent heat loss and save them their energy as well.
1: So you've got a lot of people uh, obviously ordering online. Are people capable, I mean, COVID, with COVID restrictions or once COVID is over, are people capable of coming either picking their own or buying uh, from you on site?
2: At the greenhouse, you mean? Yes. Uh, We do. So we have, uh, no, we sell everything online. So everything that we grow, that we source from all of our partner farmers and and, uh, food makers is sold in this online farmer's market. Um, It's still as fresh as humanly possible, essentially kind of our goal with us and a lot of our partners is to avoid waste. Um, So we really do try to pick, uh, plan, bake, whatever is being made uh, or harvested to order. For a given day, um, it doesn't mean everything is. We do have to store some stuff, but by doing that, we have as fresh as possible products, um, as little as possible waste, and and we don't need to store anything. We can actually save on the also just the, the warehouse footprint in that way as well. Um, so yeah. Cool.
1: Well, I mean, the the state sustainability component of it is is great. You still got to get the packages to your clients. So, you know, what, what, what have you done from a sustainability perspective and how are you putting together packaging for, are you using reusable? Or are you using, you know, people bringing back their packaging? Uh, how, do you, how do you get it to them?
2: Yeah, so everything's delivered in, in boxes and kind of those these, uh, gray bins that you might see around. Um, so that would be, and everybody orders what they want for that week. So it's truly really like an online farmer's market and online grocery store almost in a way. So you pick and choose what you want. Um, You actually have until midnight before your delivery day to finish customizing your order. And then the next day, it's sent out either to a pickup point of your choosing or home delivery, if that's your option, um, in these bins, these baskets. Um, And based on how much you order, you may get one, two, three, ten, who knows, (laughs) baskets delivered to you. And then we pick those up on the following week. Uh, You can also bring them back to us at any of our pickup points, but that's kind of how the cycle goes. Mm -hmm. And packaging is a big focus, actually. Within the basket as well, we're constantly looking at how to decrease the footprint of that packaging um, and, the, and the sustainability side there. So we've done, we've actually converted everything in our greenhouses to compostable packaging. Um, and even some of our plant supplies are now compostable plastic. Um, so it's, it's really a key focus, a key part of our, our mission test actually, in terms of how we think about the sustainability of everything we do.
0: And I have to say the, the packaging was a major reason why I think in our family, we're too busy entrepreneurs. We ended up increasing our loofah order because some of these meal kits are, Pretty, uh, pretty wasteful in terms of packaging and I just started to feel really bad about all these boxes I was getting. So um, congrats on, on on helping to solve that problem.
2: Yeah, work in progress, but definitely some good moves.
0: <laughs> and uh, Lauren, I was mentioning that, you know, I'm a fan. Uh, I subscribe. Um, I love the sustainability. And this company sort of came out of nowhere to become really a, a huge international phenomenon, the, the largest indoor greenhouse in the world right now, Tell me how all of this came together. Um, How did you meet your co-founders? What are your dreams and where is this this uh, really interesting business going?
2: Yeah, um, so I was studying at McGill at the time um, when this started started to culminate, essentially. Um, I I actually studied biochemistry at McGill and um, met my co-founder, one of my uh, co-founders, Mohammed Hajj, during my time there. Uh, We were starting to kind of get this idea together around the time that I was graduating. Um, And the, the idea was really like, uh, yeah, solving for a number of things. I mean, it's become so much more since then, too, but really um, looking at freshness issues with produce, um, food security in terms of what's grown where. Um, and a lot of that early day focus was really just you go to, into a grocery store and you see a tomato on a shelf and you might know what country it came from. But you certainly don't know where in that country specifically, let alone who grew it or how it was grown. And we really wanted to kind of solve for that transparency issue that, uh, connectivity issue, uh, between people and, and where their food comes from. So that was kind of, and then the, eye would, that, that was turned into, okay, let's grow food in the city. How do we do that? Rooftops is key. It solves for a few sustainability, uh, things along the way. And, um, and then selling directly to customers. Again, that directness, that transparency being kind of at the, the forefront of what we were thinking about. Um, so right after I graduated from McGill, we were kind of learning the ropes. I did not study plant science. Uh, my, my partner didn't as well. So we were growing things at the McDonald campus of McGill, kind of learning greenhouse growing, learning hydroponics, um, and being advised by some of the professors there to kind of get, get the initial stuff figured out. Um, and we have had we have a couple other co-founders as well. Uh, Yahya, a longtime family friend, uh, led the charge on the engineering. Um, so okay, now how do we build a greenhouse on a rooftop? Uh, he was pivotal there. Um, and Kurt Lynn uh, was on the just a long-time mentor, a long-time advisor, and in a number of different capacities, really brought the marketing and the communications and the storytelling um, to the table and how we could put this all together and really speak to what became our wars, our, our customers, ultimately
1: it's you know it's fascinating i'm going to jump a little bit around to to kind of the covid concept of bringing this uh bringing this to to market and where it's gone and i guess i mean i don't want to say that you know covid couldn't have been a better business model opportunity for you but it it certainly helped people think and 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 as we get into you know the discussions uh and and it's it's a challenge I mean, no matter where you are on this whole discussion of vaccines and, and and what we put into our bodies it's it's a very topical conversation right now and one of the problems with a lot of the standard you know uh, farming is you know the land a lot of land has been you know uh, has been poisoned over the years and in, in terms of what we've done and and, and how we've done the world wrong uh, I mean the opportunity here to to kind of refresh and restart on some of this is is massive I mean does that when you play into the sustainability portion, I get it, but is that also part of where you see this is a more natural, cleaner approach to doing things than, uh, than we're going on in the farming with vegetables before?
2: Yeah, I think it doesn't replace it. I think it's complementary. Um, I think everyone needs to be increasingly mindful of, of, the circularity of what they do the sustainability the footprint of what they do so the way we grow again so we were looking at okay local agriculture urban agriculture those being kind of two main components that we were solving for and then sustainable agriculture responsible agriculture so the way we how do we farm uh, and we kind of looked really closely at all the different facets of that to make sure that we were very very sustainability minded obviously from the get-go so we're circulating all of our water kind of being a big one you're talking about you know, impacts on the environment. And that was like the key thing that we put in place right from day one. Um, Again, so there's no runoff, there's no waste. Um, It's as efficient as possible. We don't use any synthetic pesticides. We use only biocontrols. So we're also looking at, it's a little bit of a circularity thing there, right? We're creating these ecosystems of good bugs versus bad bugs in our plants to keep things healthy over time. Um, Yeah. And obviously energy as well, that harmony of the greenhouse on an urban rooftop, those two structures work incredibly well together and it's very energy efficient design um so i think that's that's the key and we we work hand in hand with a lot of local farms a lot of local food makers and the themes are the same the values are the same um we look at at, everyone's kind of studying their footprint and we have sort of standards that we we uh we set out for them as well or that we work with them on
1: you're one up on my next question, because my, my next question was going to be, how do you control your partners and 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 to make sure that they're maintaining the same standards? I mean, do you have written uh, a protocol? Do you have, uh, you know, like kind of a, does everybody sign on to doing things the same way?
2: Yeah, yeah. Essentially, we have, it's not, uh, it's essentially like an internal process, internal checklist, let's say we call it our, our mission test, um, which is, uh, yeah, do they share the same values? Do they do things the way that? we need them to be done or that from a that the planet needs them to, to be done right it's really about sustainability um, packaging is in there as well like being mindful of, of the packaging they're using the ingredients they're using if they're processing food or making or baking um, the ingredients are really important so um, it really builds this awareness in our whole ecosystem um, and we really do seek out people that are already doing that or that are willing and then ready to change or, or update things accordingly
0: I was going to say, you have some really interesting partners. Um, I'm looking forward to my Half Kelston uh, croissant tomorrow morning. Um, is that a big part of your success as well? Just getting some of those brands within the family? Because it's, it's convenient for me to not have to run around and get my croissants all the time.
2: Yeah, I think we've, there's just so many cool people doing so many cool things. And uh, like our partners are incredible. We have, um, you're yeah, Half Kelston's uh, amazing kind of like, like icon bakery in Montreal. Um, and they're very, yeah ingredient packaging like I said minded. so they were ready and willing to come on board um and it gives people a lot of access to a lot of different things in one place like it's, it's not just vegetables right it's we source we grow a lot ourselves we do tomatoes cucumbers peppers eggplants greens you name it uh, you know 50 plus varieties um but then we also source everything you can think of so we've got dairy we've got bread like you mentioned from hoff um and uh, meat, seafood, uh, every category pretty much you need. Um, And we're always looking for partners that, again, share those values that are like-minded to help supply those things. I think one of our, one of my favorite, or no, I shouldn't have favorites, but one of our I guess best examples of a partner farm who's been with us a really long time, has grown with us, has experimented with us, tried new varieties for um, is uh, Carl uh, at um, the farm. is called Bio-Sever, Carl Gagnon. It's right in Laval. It's really not far from the city. Um, and he's just every year is doing all sorts of cool things. He's organic. Um, and he's, I think he initially just did a few different varieties of things. And then he's sort of just played with the his crop plan year after year. Um, and our team often goes and visits, checks things out. Uh, yeah just a cool. really great guy.
1: So I, I got to assume that, uh, you know, as successful as the, as the project that you're working on now, you're going to continue to expand either locally or, or, or nationally. Uh, have you had requests for the model that you've created, where you've started? I mean, this is relatively new, groundbreaking, excuse the pun, uh, process here. Are you getting requests from other major urban centers as to, hey, how do we get this going? And, and, and what does this look like?
2: You're talking about like beyond Montreal, or, or yeah,
1: any, Montreal? anywhere and in the world. I mean, I mean, if you're if you're if you're talking about urban farming, you have places like you know New York City or Paris or you know there a lot of these places that have it. I mean, you even look at some of the cities in Africa and Asia. If you could start, you know, creating these things, I think we solve a very large problem of hunger around the world. I mean, this is a this is a a recipe again that 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 is probably something we should be looking at in the future. You guys are one of the first to do so. Is this going to provide an opportunity for you to try and get your message out and uh, work forward. Forget the dollar value to it. I'm just talking about principally here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we, that's why we set out to do this. That's why we built the world's first commercial rooftop greenhouse and we've steadily grown um, in Montreal. It's not, this is, um, we joke, like we tell our team um, this is a a multi-generational endeavor. Uh, This is a long game. This is not a like grow fast and split sort of situation. We're really, steadily trying to create a business model that is not the only solution but can complement a lot of these sustainability food security and other issues especially in urban areas where populations are increasingly densifying so um, we've proven the concept in Montreal Um, we've especially over the last year with kind of COVID crunch times we've really honed a lot of the key components of our operations and now I think we're at the, the precipice of, of expanding beyond Montreal. That's really the next big step that we plan to take. We're going to continue to grow in Montreal and build uh, more rooftop greenhouses, but we're really looking, a lot of our team's effort now is starting to look look up and look ahead. Uh, which which city's next and, and how do we start really rolling this out?
1: Are you still doing any work with McDonald College uh, uh, in the West Island? Uh, I mean, they've, they've been trying to be at the forefront of a lot of this work as well. So.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have advisors there that, that we ping from time to time to kind of help us with some of the the key problems we're up against. Yeah. Uh, Danielle Donnelly was was one of the key uh, people that helped us. She basically taught Mohammed and myself plant science. She um, helped us with a lot of like literature reviews and kind of early studies of urban agriculture. It's really, really their amazing team.
1: It's going, to be, it's going to be interesting to see how the uh, sustainability environmental component of doing the right thing is going to mix with capitalism somewhere in the near future <laughs> before we start to see large corporations starting to, to put uh, greenhouses on top of their big buildings. So, uh, you know, power to you. This is a phenomenal project. And uh, like I said, growing up in the country and watching some of the effects on farmers, this is a great thing to see.
0: We'll have Lauren's uh, one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a moment. Certainly, they've had some interesting offers, I'm sure, um, in the past few months, especially since they made the news um, for that largest uh, indoor uh, rooftop greenhouse in the world. Um, Let's bring in Jean-François Odette, partner and vice president at Group Fuller Landau, to talk about acquisitions, um, unsolicited and otherwise. Jean-François, welcome. Thank you, Dan, for having me today. And Mike, in the case of Lufa, I mean, once I know in PR, once you start breaking through and making the news on CNN and getting some headlines internationally, your, people are going to come calling.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, the, everybody is looking for something that is a hot topic that, you know, has, has, a, has a really good situation within the marketplace Uh, that could be the next, uh, you know, unicorn, as they call them in in Silicon Valley. And the reality is, is somebody at some point is going to come knocking. And certainly when you get into groundbreaking areas, you get into technology areas, you get into sustainability areas, there are a lot of people with a lot of money who are are, going to start knocking on your door. And JF, I mean, you know, part of part of that, that, excitement i guess is is how do you manage unsolicited offers and when they come your way what what are some of the things that you should be considering when somebody knocks on the door and says hey uh we're interested in your business uh are you for sale
3: there are so many things to consider mike and maybe before we we address that specifically I maybe i'll just speak about the landscape and everything so uh so first like the unsolicited offer it's, it's pretty self-explanatory it's uh it's an offer you know, an unsolicited offer in respect of which a management or board of directors, uh, you know, did not start out or otherwise arrange for the offer to, uh, to to make such an offer. So and I think it's especially relevant nowadays to discuss about that topic, because if you just look at the Canadian m M&A market activity, uh, it completely recovered to its pre-pandemic level. Uh, This is true both on a transaction count uh, and uh, with regards to the the value of the deals that are being out there. Um, And looking at uh, the the current pace for the six months, uh, 2021 is pretty much in line to be as good as 2018. And just uh, to throw out numbers out there, uh, 2018, we had close to 2000 transactions that accounted for you know, approximately 125 billion right now, first half of 21, uh, 2021. Sorry, we were just over a thousand transaction with a valuation of you know, give or take 62 billion. So, pretty much in track to 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 match 2018, which is a which was a very solid year in terms of m and And you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm in the marketplace. As you said, you've got many companies and strategic buyers that you know are loaded with cash. Um, and, and not to mention those private, private equity firms, uh, you know, they've been really good at raising capitals over the last few years, and now they're sitting on a lot of dry powder. And you know, they need to find companies to invest in uh, to get a return on that capital that was raised uh, over the years. So taking a step back, you know, we are in an environment that is very suitable uh, for these unsolicited offers. And offers will be looking for companies with, you know, a solid business model and with, you know, an interesting and a bright outlook. So, you know, it's not a question of if it's going to happen, it's, it's more a question, of, you know, when uh, it's going to happen.
1: So one of the things, JF, that, that, that I find, you know, interesting in, in, in the numbers is, you know, we have come full circle, like you said, from 2018. Uh, the interesting component, I think, is the mix of the type of deals that are going on. And I think we're going to continue to see uh, businesses like Lauren's uh, be at the forefront as a lot of people go back to, you know, we were very global on a lot of things. I think people have, with COVID have, have started to look inward again. And there's a lot of opportunity that, that's out there, and there's a lot of money in making our lives a better places as, as we come out of this. Uh, you know, Lauren, if she hasn't already, I'm sure you're going to get a couple of knocks on the door. Uh, you know, wh- what what are some of the first things that they should be doing? Well, the first thing
3: is really the first question they should act, ask themselves is, you know, are they even contemplating selling the business? I mean, if you're looking at, uh, you know, the, from the seller's perspective. know when you get an unsolicited offer the investment is pretty low uh and you know preparing to put the business for sale it demands significant time and resources so you 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 can bypass that by getting an unsolicited offer um but on, on the other end though uh you know getting unsolicited offer uh the buyer really drives the discussion and the timing and you know by initiating this process the buyer will be framing the narrative around what makes the target company valuable and how much it is worth. And and more importantly, it will control timing and, you know, uh, it will push the seller into, you know, a major decision that is likely not going to be made at the best point in, you know, in the business cycle or, you know, at a moment where the owners are ready to, to retire. So and and that's the thing with you know unsolicited offer you you'll never really know if you're getting the best deal because you're pretty much dealing you know one on one with,
1: with with uh, with a prospective buyer. Yeah and I think the big thing when you start getting into sustainability in areas where people have started this with a mission and a purpose and the corporate world comes knocking on capitalism uh, I think one of the things that they may lose control over is the, is the, is the quality of the product and the direction that they want to take things you know what what are you looking at when you're when you're uh, consulting on somebody who gets an offer who's in a situation like um, where Lauren is, that that obviously has started this business for a purpose. It's not just about making money; it's about making the world a better place. And you know, some capitalist knocks on the door and says, "I've got a billion dollars, but uh, this is what we're going to do."
3: There's always a question of fit with you know the potential purchaser. You 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 want to know who you're dealing with. Are you dealing with a competitor? Are you dealing with a private equity firm? The, these guys, they 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 have an agenda and you, you want to see you know, if if there's a fit with you know what you want to leave as a legacy. Um, so that's you know truly the number one thing that you're gonna be looking at. And now assuming that you're moving along into the process, well, it becomes a question of you know rallying your team to be surrounded by professionals. Uh, and that would mean your accountant, your tax experts, your legal advisor. Uh, there are so many things to consider and to look at when you're getting an offer. And, uh, you know, just from a legal standpoint of view, I mean, you want to have your lawyer around the table to review that, you know, purchase agreement there's, and I'm not going to learn you anything, Mike. I mean, when you get a, 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 purchase agreement, it's a lengthy document and, uh, you know, most of the provisions in there are standard, but there may be, you know, some specific provisions that you want to have a specific look at. Uh, and I'm thinking about, you know, the non-compete provision, you know, responsibilities, warranties that, you know, following the closing, uh, you know, you, as a seller, you you want to make sure that you limit your exposure as much as possible uh,
0: following the closing. Jean-François Audet, partner and vice president at Group Fuller Landau on acquisitions. Uh, thanks so much, Jean-François. Thank you very much, Dan. And Mike, at the end of the show, as we always do, we turn to our guest, Lauren Rathmill, co-founder and greenhouse director of Lufa Farms. And we ask her for her one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Lauren, what do you think?
2: Um, I thought a lot about this. And I think um, there's so much advice and so many things we've learned along the way. Um, I think one of the things that really stands out, especially in this era of, of, of awareness and um, everything being kind of, uh, yeah so, social endeavors sustainability endeavors um the really important thing to me and i guess in a snapshot would be center yourself and your endeavor on strong transparent values um, we did that from the get-go and i think we've we've maintained that all along the way um this is really what anchors your team it, it defines your culture and it and it builds your following uh, that's why our local are with us and and hopefully we'll we'll stay with us long term
0: I'm not going anywhere. So thank you for, uh, for, for your mission and for your extremely competent business. I mean, it's great. It's really great to receive those boxes. Mike, um, just really another great Montreal company to start the season and one that, uh, is not done making noise internationally.
1: Definitely. And, you know, it's the one thing that over the last little while that, that's really amazed me about, you know, the shows that we put together has really been this kind of groundbreaking environment of, of, of taking young new technology or young new sustainability models and, you know, kind of, I don't want to say getting away from the old manufacturing, but uh, there's certainly a lot of really good things that are going on in this city. And, and it's great to see the entrepreneurial spirit alive and kicking in any younger generation. So, you know, for the old man like me, it's good to, it's good to look down the road and, and see a lot of positivity coming our way.
0: You know, I had one of those supply chain moments um, where, uh, you know, a few, a few months ago we had Lufa Farms and they were saying about all their extra strawberries and then I tasted the strawberries in their juice. And today Lauren was talking about all the tomatoes and I, 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 I hearkened back to last week when we made all the tomato sauce from our extra tomatoes uh, that we got from Lufa Farms. So uh, supply chains are changing and we'll be bringing that up, of course, uh, a little more on the show, uh, this season, Mike, uh, it's been a great show. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week. And it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Don't forget today's entrepreneur.org for 13 years worth of shows. If you want to get some entrepreneurial inspiration there, and we'll see you back here next week. Don't forget to s- subscribe on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or your favorite podcast platform. Take care.